chapter 3 of Hebrews first. Um, one of the things uh, I think the challenges even for preaching uh, from the minor prophets, especially um, in, in such strong uh, language, judgmental language and condemnation, particularly in the book of Nahum as we shared and, and even the warning to Nineveh, um, and we'll see it again, sometimes directed to God's people, uh, sometimes directed to the, to the other nations. In fact, some of them outline uh, God's judgment on multiple nations. And so I think for the Christian, sometimes uh, we can get to the place to where uh, we can rest sort of in our relationship with Christ and we, uh, and we ignore those passages because we kind of reason that they don't really pertain to us. But I think there's great advantage a great advantage for the Christian uh, to, to, to hear and to think about what we were sharing this morning from the scriptures. Uh, for me, it, it magnifies the, the necessity of Christ and the exclusive nature of Christ as well. It exalts Christ. It exalts uh, my salvation. So it's a needful thing. Uh, it's part of the whole counsel of God, obviously. But to me, one of the frightening things is it does set a precedent um, so we can say that God has acted this way in history and there's no reason to assume that, uh, that he won't act that way again if the circumstances unfold in the same way. So it's a, it's a frightening thing. Uh, actually from Hebrews 10, we'll look at that briefly in a moment, but uh, Hebrews 3 was where my heart was drawn as sort of a concluding message to the series in Nahum. Uh, let's just read verses 1 through 19, Hebrews chapter 3. Obviously, the author of Hebrews is exalting Christ, the superiority of Christ on a lot of levels here in regards to his priestliness, his high priest, his role as high priest. He begins, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of, the heavenly, of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by justice so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, that's key. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me and test by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And this was the passage that came to my mind, which drew me to Hebrews. So Paul, so the author here writes, take care of them, brethren, that there be not in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm unto the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? 
Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And then chapter four, he gets into the, uh, the uh, really unfolding what the believer's rest in Christ is. So let's pray before we begin. Father, again, we thank you for your word. I just ask for your help tonight to, uh, and your encouragement, Father, to our hearts as well as believers. Uh, certainly we are secure and nothing to be said tonight should shake our confidence in Christ and the sufficiency of Christ to hold us fast for all of eternity. But Father, at the same time, we, we dare not disregard the imperatives and the warnings that are given to believers here. He says this to brethren. And so Father, there is at least the possibility that we might even be deceived by our own hearts, certainly. But Father, there is, a, uh, there is the seeds of hardness, maybe even in the fleshly heart that we ought to be guarded against and to be warned of. Certainly, we rely upon grace and your mercy that we might be found faithful. So Father, help us tonight to hear, hear the warnings, to hear the examples, but at the same time to have absolute confidence in Christ and his sufficiency. We ask again in Jesus' name, amen. In that passage, uh, I've just made the point in that prayer in verse 12, uh, I just, I'm just struck by he's addressing this to brethren. Uh, you can get a sense uh, in the context when he goes to, when he's talking about Israel, they all came out under the leadership of Moses. So, so in a very real sense, all of these, some of whom fell in the wilderness because of their unbelief, were all exposed. They were, in the, they were under the umbrella of Moses or God's working with Moses. Uh, he says later, uh, even in 1 Corinthians, and again, even I think in, in Hebrews 10, but they were all, they all had the advantage of this, of this head as it were. So they'd had a knowledge of God. They all had this in common. But amongst that, among that household, there were those, those who were unbelieving. And so uh, when he says this to brethren, it just really strikes me in some ways in the same context. In other words, we can all be gathered in this church, whether it's this crowd tonight or the crowd Sunday morning or even a larger crowd. There can be everybody gathered together under this banner of Christian fellowship. But even in, that, even in the midst of that group, there can be those who are unbelieving. And so this warning goes out to the brethren. Brethren, he says, take care. And so he's not saying lost people take care. Obviously, they are outside of the family of God and are in great peril as we described this morning. So this appeal in Hebrews here is to the brethren. Be careful that this doesn't happen to you. And you would say, well, it could never happen to us. We're brethren. And he would argue, yes, and the Jews said it could never happen to them, but they were all under Moses and they all seen the mighty workings of God, yet they come into the wilderness and they challenged God in so many ways and many died there because of unbelief. So the warning is rooted in the past uh, for the Jews there as well, but he's talking here to brethren. And notice as well in that verse, take care brethren that there not be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart. So, so what he's asking them or calling upon them to take care about is the heart. 
And so that tells me that there can be an outward practice, but, a, but, but a not an inward heart that has embraced these truths and has come into a relationship with Christ. So, so it's possible for me, brethren, to alter and adjust my behavior outwardly and maybe by some power of the flesh or strength of the flesh to conform myself to outward expectations. But there is a heart issue. And he doesn't say, take care of your practice. That's true. There are other places in scripture to make that argument, but the author here is warning or exhorting the brethren to take care of the heart. And he's going to talk specifically about the heart in that sense, but that, I want to get to the root of that. This is the, this is the matter that he's appealing to them about. It's your heart. A lot of these people were probably already conforming to the outward expectations of the Christian faith. And some were bringing, I'm sure, a Jewish ideology into that, Judaism. And he's pushing back on some of that, showing the superiority of Christ all throughout the book of Hebrews. But he's talking to brethren who are more or less conforming outwardly to the truths of what they've come to know. But he says to them, take care in regards to your heart. Three things that he mentions there. Number one is that it not be uh, in any of us. In other words, he says that. Be careful, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you, any one of you, an evil heart. So take care in regards to the heart. And this is universal for the body of the believers here. That be careful and take care that there is not in any of you an evil heart. You might even say an unconverted heart or an unbelieving heart. It seems to me that that's his definition of what he's going to describe as the unbelieving heart. So, so take care in regards to the heart that you are genuinely a believer and not an unbeliever and therefore of an evil heart. There, let me just say there is no way without the new birth and a new heart given to us by God that we will, we will work out the Christian faith in a way that glorifies God and produces the new life that Christ has formed in us. We will always pervert that. We will go to one extreme that maybe be legalism or we will go to the other extreme to accommodate the flesh. We will always twist that somehow or another. And, and even though we may use the Bible even to establish that, there's no newness of heart. There's no new life. There's not the new creation. So it's really conformity to a different set of rules. You may say that, well, these are Christian rules, so that makes them good. Maybe so, but it doesn't change the heart. So be careful, brethren, as you gather under the banner of Christianity and as you conform your life to the teachings and the doctrines of Christianity, that you don't do that with an evil heart. And that's, that's so needed in our generation, it seems today, especially here in the Bible Belt, because we've learned from our childhood to conform ourselves to Southern Bible Belt Christianity. And a lot of that has gone away. In fact, what remains now seems only to be a remnant. The real heart of the Christian faith in the South seems to have gone away. And we've reduced the entirety of the Christian faith to traditions. And the traditions carried us along for so far, but now we're at a point to where they're no longer sufficient. And we see people exiting the church here in the South, particularly in the Bible Belt, in masses because tradition's not enough. 
They don't have the same nostalgic view of those traditions. They come from outside of those traditions in many cases, and that's not feeding the soul. That's not sufficient for them. So it's no wonder to me that so many are exiting the churches here, particularly in the Southern, the Bible Belt, particularly even in Southern Baptist churches. Because we've reduced everything down to mere outward conformity and a set of moral principles without any newness of heart. We have not stressed the new birth as we should have. So he's warning these brethren about their hearts and that it not be, that it not be evil. And then as he says there as well, an unbelieving heart. So that's the essence of an evil heart is an unbelieving heart. I know we would simply say, well, they're just not a believer yet. Well, the author here seems to categorize an unbelieving heart as an evil heart. We look into society and, well, they're not a believer yet, but they're not an evil heart. They're actually good-hearted. Well, not according to the author of the Hebrews. He classifies the heart that's in unbelief as an evil heart. There needs to be a heart transplant, as it were, or a new birth to bring about a new heart that does believe and therefore is not an evil heart. So be careful, brethren, under the banner of Christianity that you do not possess an unbelieving heart, which is an evil heart. Because you will not be able to process and to, to, to grasp the, the, weight, the weightiness of the truths of God's word. You will always come up short of that. So unbelieving, he adds to that as well. In regards to this heart, it's an evil heart, an unbelieving heart. But then maybe to the end that this is a heart that falls away from the living God. It prefers Something other than the living God. Why? Because it's a, it's a heart that is, has been deceived now. Sin has deceived the heart. And the heart has become evil. And the evil heart that's been deceived by sin has no interest in the living God. Because the living God calls it out. And it seeks another way. And that's the trajectory of this evil heart of unbelief. It's deceived by sin. And that's the, that's the big thing there. And this is where I think it comes to bear for true believers. Because we haven't, we haven't experienced glorification. We are cru- crucified with Christ. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says. So, so there is a sense in which we are putting to death um, the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit throughout our Christian life. We are being conformed to the image of Christ by the grace of God. So I know even in my own heart, there are still these fleshly impulses that I identify occasionally. Well, there's a danger with embracing those and nursing those and not confronting those with the truth of God's word and by the spirit. And it is that they become deceptive to us. We, we think the sin not to be so sinful or we think it to be tolerant or perhaps it's not a priority. I got rid of the big ones, but this one's okay. I can nurse a little spirit of pride or self-sufficiency. In fact, sometimes in a culture where we admire self-sufficiency and self-determination, we might even feel a little pride that we have that sense of self-determination and self-sufficiency. So we might nurse that little sin. Well, the problem is that's deceptive. That's exactly how the heart becomes unbelieving is through the deceptiveness of the sins that we embrace. We become unbelieving and the heart becomes evil. And the trajectory of that is eventually we fall away. He says, be careful, brethren, that you don't have a heart like that. Now, that's frightening for me because I'm not sure I'm the, I'm the final uh, 
advocate for my own heart. Paul even says in regards to his own conscience that he wasn't conscious of anything against himself, but he wasn't thereby acquitted. In other words, Paul's even understanding that, look, my conscience is not the final arbiter as to whether or not I stand guilty before God. I yield to God in that matter. So in evaluating our heart this way, there has to be an appeal to God. God, would you show me, would you identify for me in my heart any root of bitterness or any fleshliness? And Lord, would you illuminate that and by your grace, help me to be crucified in that area. Help me not to turn to that or embrace that or encourage that or to nurture it in any way, because I fear that if I do that, it becomes deceptive, and the deceptiveness will produce in me a hardened heart, as he says later, and a heart that's deceived and evil, and even a heart that falls away from the living God. So take care, brethren. Take care over your heart. Let it not be an evil heart, an unbelieving heart, and a heart that falls away. I love it that he says, uh, to all the brethren, not just to the leaders, not just to the elders and the deacons, not just to fathers in the home. He says, let this kind of heart not be in any of you. From the least to the eldest, to the most, most responsible, to the least accountable. In all of you, do not let this sort of heart be in you. So that tells me that that's an individual, uh, an individual imperative for everybody in this room professing to be a Christian tonight. The author of Hebrews would say, take care, Christian that this not be the heart that is in you. He says as well, verse 13, and I think this is part and parcel of that as well, but he says, but as if this is the alternative to allowing this sort of activity and this developing of this deceptiveness of sin and the hardening of the heart, rather encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that, so that as an instrument guarding against the, the, the hardening that happens by the deceitfulness of sin, which he's already defined that as the essence of an evil heart, a heart that has been deceived by the sin. How do I guard against deception of sin? By encouraging one another. That's amazing to me because I could have gave a long list and that would have been on there, but it would have been way down the list. But he puts it right here at the front of this. Rather than Letting your heart become this way, take extra care that you don't have this sort of heart. And he offers, at least as an alternative to that, the encouragement of one another. So that tells me the encouragement must involve more than just saying, brother, everything will be all right. There's a place for that. I love encouragement like that. I love a brother that will come alongside and say, brother, just hang on. Things will work out. But how much greater encouragement would the brother come to me with the scriptures and say, like, for instance, Romans 8, 28, 29, all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose, Larry. Hang in there based upon that reality. Hey, that's encouragement. So how do I avoid the deceitfulness of sin and the hardening that happens as a result? We encourage, we encourage one another. And our greatest tool, by the way, of encouragement is the scriptures. Uh, if you're a believer, don't you, don't you acknowledge that? I mean, we appreciate compassion and mercy from others. 
We appreciate a hug. We appreciate a shedding of tears with us when we are in difficult times. We appreciate rejoicing with us when we're in wonderful times. But what the Christian heart feeds on the most is when the truth of God's word comes to bear and illuminates their circumstances and hope is born. To me, to me, that is the greatest encouragement. That's why we're working even as leaders in discussing things in this church that our fellowship would be conformed more and more to that sort of encouragement. Not just companionship. Those things have their place. And there's something about a, a good friend and a warm embrace and a, and a friendly and warm handshake and a, and a welcome among the believers. But there's something equipping in regards to the encouraging of one another through the truth of God's word. In fact, he, write, he listed here as critical to avoiding the deceptiveness and the hardening that happens by being deceived by sin and tying that even to falling away and becoming evil of heart. So don't discount encouraging one another. I love this as well, but you may have caught this, but he says, Encourage one another day after day. That's every day. And then he says, as long as it is still called today. That's every day, all day. <laughs> so when should we do this encouraging? Sundays? As we gather on the Lord's Day for worship? Yes, because that's a day. And it's called today. And we should do it Monday. And we should do it Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And you say, you mean we encourage one another every day of the week? And then I would say, the author says here, yes, all day, every day. <laughs> and so so I, I think he's speaking hyperbolically, perhaps, but he's trying to indicate the importance of a continual and ongoing and consistent encouraging of one another according to the truth of God's word. There is not a day that is not a good day or any hour in the day that is not a good hour to encourage the brethren because what's at stake is their very foundations and the firmness of their faith. What's at stake is the condition of their heart, which is subject in this fallen world to becoming hardened and deceived by sin and so hardened that it drifts away from the living God. That's why that's important. And let me just say, if you think that your heart today is somehow protected against that by the sheer strength of your knowledge or, or your passion or your zeal or anything else, you have not yet come to know the deceptiveness of the heart. The scriptures teach us the heart is deceitful above all things who can know it. So there is a danger there and he's warning the brethren in regards to the condition of their heart and giving them a solution, a guard as it were against their heart becoming that way. Did you ever, did you ever think of encouragement of the brethren uh, with, that, with that degree of efficacy in the keeping of my heart? I have to admit to you, I never connected those two as, as that critical. Yes, I knew fellowship was important. I can draw the verses out and talk about how fellowship is important. But I never, I never in my mind or in my, in my understanding connected it so closely with my own, the condition of my own heart. That's why later in Hebrews he says, forsake not the assembling of yourself as the habit of some is. Why? Because in the forsaking of that assembly, you cut yourself off from the encouragement and therefore expose your heart to the deceitfulness, deceitfulness of sin, thereby your heart being hardened and thereby becoming evil and thereby potentially being the source of your falling away or drifting away from God. As the old preachers used to say, a backsliding. 
So it's a critical thing, not just to keep yourself in fellowship, but to draw from the encouragement of one another. That means me to you and you to me. Doesn't mean it all comes from here to you. It means it gets reciprocated back from you to here and vice versa. Put yourself here and everybody else there. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interaction among the congregation whereby hearts are being guarded against the deceitfulness of sin. Christian fellowship is critical, right? It seems obvious to me. In verse 14 as well, he begins there, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm unto the end. Let me just say, I don't understand this verse in the context of many other verses to mean that we maintain or that we establish our security in Christ by doing these things. In fact, I think these things are evidences that we are indeed partakers of Christ. If we do this unto the end. I mean, anybody can say I'm a partaker of Christ and do it for a while. How long will they do it? How long will this transformation, how long will the heart's condition be in this way? How long will it be if they, in fact, become deceived by sin? And in fact, in fact, they become hardened by sin. And in their hardness, they begin to have an evil heart. And by this evil heart, they fall away from the living God. Then they manifest proof evidence in that sense that they are not partakers with Christ. The only ultimate evidence you have outside of sanctification and the witness of the Spirit, the ultimate evidence that you are partakers of Christ is if you hold fast to your confession until the end. And by God's grace, that ought to be the determination of every Christian in this room tonight. I want to make it to the end faithful. I don't want to stop when I'm 70 I don't want to find that I've got some plateau and that I've achieved enough now to merit the kingdom of heaven. I want to be becoming more humbled all the way, more dependent upon Christ. I don't want to get to my deathbed and be less dependent on Christ than I was at my conversion. I want to get to my deathbed and be magnified my dependence upon Christ. I want the sufficiency of Christ to be loomed large in that moment, larger than it ever has. I want to finish well, don't you? As a Christian, I think we all do. And that's what he's speaking of here. And he gives this example, verse 15, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Listen to the example he gives. Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So under this banner of Moses, through Moses, and God's deliverance of these people through Moses, under this banner, and all of those people witnessing the same things in their midst, there were unbelievers there who defied God in the midst, and God struck them down in the wilderness, and they did not enter into the rest that he was promising there, the promised land, but foreshadowing the rest that we have in Christ. So it is unbelief. He finishes that verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, chapter 4, let us fear while a promise remains of entering his rest. Any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Uh, verse 3 real quickly, and we'll come back to that at another time. For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, so he's speaking to believers here. And part of 
resting in Christ is believing, having the believing heart. And we find our rest in Christ in this moment. But in all of us, even in the most, the most holy of us all, because we've not yet arrived, there are always the seeds and the potential that we might be deceived by sin, that our heart may find its satisfaction in something other than Christ and thereby be inflamed to, to, to gratify the flesh. And let me just say for myself and for all of us here, the deceptiveness of that and the, and, the, and the great harm of that, of nursing sin in our lives or sinful attitudes or sinful thoughts, the, the danger of that is just treacherous. It's treacherous because it hardens us to sin. So let me look in, in, first, in Hebrews chapter 10, if you'll turn with me there. This is the passage that I cited, I think, even during the message. In this, he's establishing Christ as the new and the living way, superior, uh, exclusive in regards to our access to the Father. Uh, I want to read from verse 19. It's, it's not the passage I'm focusing on, but it gives us the context. Uh, if, you, if you read back earlier in the chapter, verse 18 kind of concludes that. Verse 17, in their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So based upon what he said in those verses preceding, verse 19, he says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience in our body, bodies and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. He picks up that theme again, encouraging one another and all the more, all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this passage for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's already said where these things are forgiven, there's no longer a need for sacrifice. There is no other sacrifice. Christ is the one sacrifice for sin. So if we go on sinning after coming to the knowledge of that truth, there remains, there's not something else we can put there. There's not, there's not bulls and goats. There, there's, there remaineth no sacrifice for sin. But, verse 27, what's, what, what's there if you're not going to trust in the sacrifice of Christ? What's there? What's left for you? A terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Which brings us back to Nahum this morning. The very kind of fire and judgment that Nahum is pronouncing upon the city of Nineveh. That's all that remains if you remove Christ as the sufficient sacrifice. Because there is no other. You can't go back in the Old Testament and pick up the bulls and goats and the sacrificial system and say, well, we don't take Christ, but we'll continue doing this. There is none. He made the one sufficient sacrifice, the one sacrifice to which all of those through the centuries was pointing to. And now that that's done, you either trust in that sacrifice or there remains no other sacrifice. 
Whatever you offer up, your works, your bulls, your goats, your money, your devotion, there is no other sacrifice. That's the one sufficient sacrifice. And if you reject that sacrifice, there is nothing available to you but a terrifying expectation of judgment. Verse 28. He says here, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And this is what I cited in the message in Nahum. How much severe punishment, this is a sobering verse, how much more severe will be the punishment to those uh, do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. How much more severe. And so when I'm reading in Nahum and I'm hearing God's judgment upon the, the heathen nations, the godless nations, and I think of in regards to the, dis, the dismissing of Christ, the, the, the treading underfoot the blood of Christ, it seems to me he's saying here, how much more severe is that? These people had a knowledge, had been told in regards to Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. But to reject that and to tread underfoot and to offer up something in that place is to tread underfoot the very blood of Christ. And that exposes you to a much more severe punishment than those who died under the law of Moses without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now the universe and God, the omnipotent and omniscient God, bears witness against you that you have tread underfoot the blood of Christ and called it defiled, essentially, the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified and in doing so have insulted the spirit of grace. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then verse 31, which is what really drew my attention when I was studying through Nahum and even the book of Jonah as well. But it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Without Christ, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As I said this morning, he is not a man... He is, not a, he is not a man that negotiates and navigates in the way that is common to us. We do that mostly out of a sinful nature. God is holy. He is not subjected to the same passions and, and inclinations that we are in our sinfulness and in our finiteness. He is omniscient and omnipotent, infinite in his wisdom and glory, and it is a terrifying thing to fall into his hands. It's interesting to me that he ends in verse 31 with that, but then in, verse, in verses 19 in the early verse, he says, let us draw near to this God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Speaking of Christ being our access to this God. Come to, come to this God other than in Christ, and it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. So those two passages really come to bear in the Christian's mind, I think, as we read the minor prophets, particularly God's judgment and, the, and just the catastrophic consequences of God's judgment on the heathen nations and even the severity of God's heavy hand of discipline on his own people. It is not to be taken lightly, and the Christian should not dismiss himself from scrutiny <coughs> on the basis of some presumption in regards to what he believes or how he's conformed his life. We ought to turn to God. So turn with me real quickly as we 
close out tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul's speaking here specifically of the experiences of Israel. And kind of, I was drawn to this because it's kind of speaking to the same issues that I think the author of Hebrews was speaking to in many ways. But Paul begins there in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual rock. <coughs> Excuse me. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's their common experience. He says here, all of them. It's what all of them were experienced. They were under this banner, if you will, of Moses and God's deliverance of his people through Moses. And they all had a common experience. They could have said, we are, we are Mosaians. They could have said, we are followers of Moses. They all had the same common experience. And one couldn't dispute the other because they all had the same experience. I drink from the water. I eat from the manna. I crossed the Red Sea with you. I saw God destroy enemies. I had the same experience as you have. I must be a, a faithful Christian. I must be faithful to God. He's making the point that they all had this same experience. But then verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, notice here, not some of them, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now that's sobering enough, but then Paul brings that home to the Corinthians and to us through his letter. Now these things happened as examples for us. Why? So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And he says again, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. So I just make the points there in verses 1 through 5. It was the company, the company among whom they dwelt. And that's where I'm making the application. We dwell under the banner in our generation of Christians. We gather in places like this. But that's not a guarantee that God is well pleased with all of those gathered under the banner. We're going back to Hebrews, the guarding of the heart. What is there a transformation of the heart? Is there a new birth? Not only that, but there is an example for us, as I've already mentioned in 6 and 11, verse 6 and verse 11, that by their sin, this is my words, but by their sin and consequences, we might be warned against the same sinful cravings so, so prone or so so inherent in the natural man. So that tells me if that's happened to them as an example to us upon whom the end of the ages have come so that we might not crave the things, then the, it seems to me that's an empty thread if we don't have the possibility of craving the very same things. So I look at the history of Israel and I see that they were all under this banner, all had this common experience, but yet in the midst of that group, not some, but most of them did not have, were not well-pleasing to God and were acting upon the cravings of the human heart. The obvious answer to me is that that's possible under the banner of Christianity as well. 
You can be in this building right now under the banner of Christian, have a lot of the common experiences of the outward expressions of the Christian faith, and even have some, some witness of the working of God, but still be nursing in your heart carnal cravings. And that what happened to them happened as an example and a warning to we who live in this age today. Did not be drawn away or deceived and crave these evil things. It's interesting me, to me his list as well. I don't think this is an exhaustive list of every carnal or craving that they had. But it does seem to be sort of representative. They're, they're underneath. They're, these manifest themselves in a lot of different ways. But he lists these uh, just, just to list these out, idolatry, immorality, trying the Lord, and grumbling in general. I think he means they grumbled against Moses, but in many cases they were grumbling against the Lord because they didn't like what the Lord was doing through Moses. So these are, these are cravings. We have desires, and our desires are not being met. I was sharing with the young folks this morning um, the implications of impatience. Uh, sometimes or frustration and to me one of the implications of that is is what you believe about God's providence if we get impatient because our expectations are not met in that moment it, it seems to me that we're questioning God's providence here this should have been met and and I don't like that it's not met and if God is providence and God is exercising a providence in the world, he should have yielded in this moment to my expectations. You're calling into question the providential hand of God Almighty in impatience. So probably the wiser course would be when our expectations are not met, we might ought to go to the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord, perhaps my expectations were unrealistic or outside of your will for this moment in my, in my day. So even in my frustration, nevertheless, Lord, your will be done and not mine. And yield to the providential hand of God. They didn't do that. They grumbled and they tested and tried the Lord. In fact, you remember Korah and his crew, I think it was Dathan and Abiram, they, they don't like the fact that the priesthood is given over to Aaron. So they, they want to come up. We're all priests. We're God's people. We're all priests, right? Of course, they says, go ahead and get your censors then and appear before here. And finally, the, make the long story short, the Lord says, get away from the tents of Dathan and, and Korah because they're about to be swallowed up by the earth. God has assigned his priesthood. God has assigned his priest ultimately in Christ. And there is no man that takes to the priesthood to himself. Therefore, they were destroyed there. So they were trying God. They were resisting, as it were, the, the mandates of God or the will of God himself. Idolatry. I know Brother Michael commented in his message last Sunday regarding Calvin's quote that the human heart is an idol factory. Boy, that is so true. So true. Crash one down and we'll produce another. Well, this craving of their heart led to idolatry. You know, the golden calf, but the ultimate idol there, I think, is themselves. The satisfaction of them flesh, their flesh. So they, they go to idols that seem to be satisfying or gratifying the carnal desires. So idolatry is a manifestation of these evil cravings. And immorality, obviously, I think it's a reference when they, Moses was on the mountain. They built the calf and he came down and they rose up to play. And, and there seems to be great implications there in regards to the, to the bull and all those things and the fertility and the sexual perversion nature of that. So they were acting immorally in that moment, these evil cravings. 
And they were trying the Lord and they were certainly grumbling about everything, it seems. We get something to eat and we don't like what we got to eat. We get bread and we get, God gives us meat, <laughs> fills us up with meat and we're sick of everything. He delivers us out of the bondage of Egypt, brings us to the river, and we grumble because the river is not parting and we're going to get taken over by Pharaoh. God led us all the way out of Egypt with all those plagues just to have us defeated here at the edge of the Red Sea. And then God has the people to be quiet and Moses raises his staff and God parts the sea. And over and over and over they see the miraculous works of God, but they seem to always get dissatisfied with that somewhere along the way. He's not acting the way he ought to act today. We're thirsty. We're hungry. We're sick of this bread. We would better off if we were in Egypt where we had onions and, and cucumbers and all those good vegetables rather than come out here in the desert to die. Always grumbling. These are manifestations of their carnal or sinful cravings. And Paul says here in Corinthians, they, what happened to them happened as an example to warn us in regards to those same cravings. Do you think that your sinful cravings will manifest themselves in lesser ways, less dangerous ways, less God-mocking uh, ways than theirs? It, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. So he says to them, therefore, verse 7, do not be idolaters. Verse 8, nor let us act morally. Verse 9, nor let us try the Lord, nor 10, nor to grumble as some of them did. And to me, the overall statement and one that rings in my heart as a Christian and has for many years is verse 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. And this verse, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So there's a, there's a way of thinking I stand that, that almost exposes me to being deceived and falling. So if I think I'm standing, take heed lest you fall. If you're worried, if you're worried that you're not standing, you may be on better ground than if you think you are standing. <laughs> because if you think you're not standing, you're going to go to the Lord and cry out to the Lord and lean upon the Lord and pray for his mercy and pray for his grace and pray for his strength that you might be found faithful. But if you think you got all that mastered, you might be closer to falling than you think you are. And I think that's what he's saying here. So, the, so based on these things happening as examples and based on the potential of our own evil cravings to manifest themselves in similar ways, take heed if you think you're standing lest you fall. And then he reminds us in verse 13, no temptation has taken, overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. I love it. This passage is often so one of the, one of the most cut in half passages ever quoted in the world these days. Because how many times have you heard that? The Lord won't let you be tempted beyond what you are able. Well, he qualifies that without providing a way of escape. So, so yes, you may be tempted, overwhelmingly tempted, but with the temptation, there is an avenue of escaping that temptation so that you can endure it. It doesn't say he's gonna, he won't overwhelm you. I'm not going to send any temptation that you can't overcome. No, I'm going to allow all sorts of temptations in your life for the purposes of sanctification. But in the temptation, there will always be an avenue for you to endure the temptation and not to fall to the temptation. Take it. For goodness sake, take the, take the exit ramp. 
I tell that tell this story all the time. We were doing a job one time, and this guy was clearing this muck and swamp in a big traco. If you know anything about those, they've got an escape hatch on the top. Well, he started digging, and as he was digging, the ground was so saturated that the traco began to sink. It was a big, big orange Hitachi traco. And as it sunk, he was reaching out with the arm, and he was trying to grab the bank. And when he grabbed the bank, he was just pulling the muck in on himself, and the thing was going down lower and lower and lower. And we looked out there, and we were all trying to get to him and get his attention. And, I mean, the muck was up to here. You could see his head looking around in that glass cab. And so far, the mud hadn't gotten to him, but it's surely he was filling it up. And he was so desperate to try to drag his way out of the muck that he forgot that there's a glass escape hatch on the top. And we were screaming at him, get out of the hatch. You are being overwhelmed. There is a way of escape. Take it or else you will be consumed. And finally, he got the point. And he flew that thing open and he jumped out and walked, laid the arm across the hard land and then walked across the arm and was ultimately saved. And we didn't get the traco out, by the way, for another two weeks. Two weeks took two wreckers and about four different backhoes to pull on it and clear the way out to the highway just to get this thing out. And he was going to sit there and be smothered by mud rather than take the escape hatch. Yes, the Lord will not tempt you beyond what you were able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. The question is, will you take it? Will you take it? And to me, that just that's a reminder of me that I am vulnerable not to take it, and vulnerable to the temptation that would come to me. So I fall upon the grace of God and fly to the cross. Once again, I fly to the cross. So I wanted to share those thoughts tonight as a cap for the book of Nahum because we can hear that and, and we can, as a Christian, in some ways rejoice and revel in the vindication of the holiness and righteousness of God Almighty and, and at the same time exalt in the mercy of Christ. But we ought to be aware that we don't set ourselves apart as though that is somehow impossible to happen in our own nation or even for, their own, for our own hearts by neglect to grow hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and find ourselves under the heavy hand of God's discipline even if we are children and if not subjecting ourselves to judgment. So I just wanted to close with those thoughts tonight. So stand with me please. Thank you again for being here tonight. Father. I do thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for salvation in Christ. I thank you for those who are here who are in Christ and secure. And Father, I thank you for your spirit that reminds us, even though we are secure, that we are not mindless of the, of the wiles of the devil, of the subtleties of his temptations, and the inclinations of the heart that's not yet, not yet fully set apart unto you. And so, Father, we thank you for grace in our lives. And, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be mindful always of, as I've said here, flying to the cross by understanding that there is where our new life is. It is in Christ that there is a rest in Christ, a ceasing from our works and a reliance upon his sufficiency and his works. But, Father, that wonderful relationship also bears fruit in our lives as well. So help us to be guarding our hearts, Lord, when we identify sinful inclinations and carnal carnal desires lord do we give us the wisdom to check those to acknowledge those to mark them down write them down and to come to you in prayer and father that you might crucify these things in us 
that our hearts might be set apart more fully and wholly devoted to you. Bless those who've come tonight, Father, those who gathered with us this morning as well. We pray that we might take your words, your words by your spirit into our week and that we might think much upon these things that you might be honored and magnified and glorified in our sight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.